Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, continuing on through uh, this wonderful letter where the first three chapters speak of what God has done on our behalf, what, what he began to do before the foundation of the world in our salvation. And then in chapter 4, we have the transition to how we ought to live now as this new creation, this new people, uh, Jew and Gentile brought together. Uh, so today we're going to really focus in on verses uh, 7 through 11, but I want to read uh, beginning in verse 1 so we remember the context here. He says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does he mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. As we consider the church, as we consider the churches we see around us, I know that it's not controversial to say that every church has its flaws and its blemishes. Some churches have more than others. That's clear to see as well. But we ought to ask the question, why is that? Why is it that some churches look more like the fullness of the stature of Christ than other churches? What makes the church more healthy? Is it its building that it has? Is it the number of people that the church has? How do we calculate what a healthy church is, what a mature church is? What we're going to see in Ephesians 4 is that to the degree that a church is mature is to the degree that the church will be like Christ. See, maturity is the key. 
And to the degree that the church is like Christ is to the degree that it'll be unified. You see, this whole section of verses from verse 1 to verse 17 are all about unity. This new people of God, united in Christ, Jew and Gentile, how are they to live? And his answer fundamentally is unified, walking in love. Humility is what will mark this people. And it'll build itself up in love, and it'll be a unified church. And then the rest of the letter, he shows us how this new people is, ought to be a holy people. Unified in love and holy. That's our new life in Christ. And so we're going to see in our text the next, this week and next week, that to the degree that the church is like Christ will be to the degree that it's unified. It'll be like Christ if it's mature. If it's like Christ, it'll be unified in love. So what determines a church's maturity and Christ-likeness? That's the question. What makes the difference? No perfect churches out there. Some much more healthy and mature. What distinguishes? What makes the, di- the difference? What we're going to see today is to the degree that every member of the church is using their spiritual gift is to the degree that it will be mature and built up in love. To the degree that each member is ministering to the body is to the degree that that church will be mature, therefore Christ-like, therefore full of self-giving love, and therefore unified. And so the question I have for you, Christian, is what is your ministry? What is your ministry? How are you serving and seeking to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ and therefore building up the body of Christ? Every Christian ought to ask themselves this question. The church, believe it or not, is not a spectator sport. It's not a just come and see what I can get out of it. That's not what the New Testament describes. It's not consumeristic by nature. In fact, by its very nature, it is a self-giving body. It's the opposite of what does this church offer me? How, how can I sit in the pew as a consumer and, and take in? What's described in the scripture is a body that is driven by love. And that love is agape love, which means it's self-giving. It's selfless. It's not given because someone deserves it. 
It's given by pure grace. So a church ought to be marked by this gracious giving. It's only by grace that the church exists. That's what we've seen in the first three chapters. And it's only by grace that the church is empowered. Remember Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How ought we to walk? Urge one another to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what he's talking about now as a believer. What do I do? You're created to walk. You're created to work. You're his workmanship. God doesn't make something that doesn't work. It's by pure grace that you were saved and that you were made into what you are. And it'll be by pure grace that your work will be empowered. So the charge of this message is this. Christ has gifted you uniquely to minister to the church. You might think that, yes, I agree with that, but I want to press that on you one more time. Christ has gifted you uniquely to minister to the church. And to the degree that you believe that will be to the, de the degree that you're ministering to the church. You see, we prove what we believe by what we do. We function based off what our beliefs are. Look at verse 7, Ephesians 4, 7. And what Paul is doing here is he's qualifying the unity that the church is supposed to have. Because what comes right before this, in, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one spirit, just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And so someone might think, well, I know what God does when he saves people. He just creates everyone the same because unity is the goal. Everyone's just exactly the same, cookie cutter. They come out, they're all Christians, they all function the same way. Paul is pressing against that. Don't think just because the goal of your salvation is to be unified with one another and to be holy that you won't be quite different in your giftedness. You're uniquely gifted. Look at verse 7. But grace... Grace was given. Grace was given. When you're talking about grace, you're always talking about gifts. Grace was given to each one. 
You see the distinction there? To each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this grace obviously is not Christ's righteousness. It's not talking about your justification. That'd be very scary if God gave different degrees of Christ's righteousness in the account of believers. We need all of Christ's righteousness to be saved. When you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is given to you. So we're not talking about justifying grace. That's not what he's saying when he says grace was given to each one. But he's talking about the grace of individual gifts given to the body. We can never stop remembering this. We can never forget this. The church is Christ's workmanship. God is making something. God has brought from death to life this new people. And God decides how it'll grow, how it'll be sustained, and what it will look like. Now, when you get to the realm of spiritual gifts, if you've been around Christianity very long, it's really easy to roll your eyes. There's been so much written about spiritual gifts, so much, uh, so many tests out there that you take this test and it tells you what spiritual gift you have. And it can be really frustrating as the person tries to figure out what their gift is, how they're to, to minister to the body. But I want to read a quote to you from uh, John Stott that I think is helpful. Uh, I like the way both John Stott and MacArthur uh, thinks about spiritual gifting. So here's what Stott says. In 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, or 1 Corinthians 12, 4, uh, now there are a variety of gifts. It is important to recall this because many people today have a very restricted view of charismata, charismata, uh, the word for gifting. For example, some people speak and write of the nine gifts of the Spirit, presumably to make a neat and artificial parallel with the Spirit's ninefold fruit in Galatians 5. So some people are like, okay, there's nine gifts, period. Others seem to be preoccupied, even obsessed, with only three of the more spectacular gifts. This would be the charismatic movement. Uh, the, the gift of tongues, prophecy, and healing, for example. Stott goes on to say, in fact, however, the five listed are the five lists, so there's five lists of spiritual gifts in the Scripture, given in the New Testament, mention between them at least 20 distinct gifts, some of which are very uh, prosaic and unsensational, like doing acts of mercy in Romans 12.8. Moreover, each list 
diverges widely from the others and gives its selection of gifts in an apparently haphazard fashion. This suggests not only that no one list is complete, but that even all five together do not represent an exhaustive catalog. Doubtless, there are many more which are unlisted. So Stott's saying, far from having a complete, concise list of spiritual gifts from which we try to figure out, well, which one am I? He says, when the gifts are listed, it's never the same list. Uh, and, and Stott goes so far to say that Sometimes it seems haphazard how the gifts are being listed. Some have sought to put the gifts in categories, like serving gifts and speaking gifts, uh, because of texts like 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, which says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So there's a word grace again. Use it to serve one another. That's the purpose of a spiritual gift. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The idea is, here Peter is summarizing their speaking gifts and their serving gifts. And then the lists you can find are, uh, at least from what the Scripture says, are gifts of administration, gifts of apostleship, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, healing, helps, hospitality, knowledge, leadership, mercy, prophecy, serving, speaking in tongues, teaching, wisdom. These are all gifts that the Scripture lists. But I like the way John MacArthur conceives of these gifts. Now, here's the way he illustrated it. He said, just as every person has a different fingerprint than anyone else in the universe, so every person in the body of Christ is uniquely gifted. God is a master of diversity. He said there's no such thing as identical twins. God always makes distinction. God always makes distinction. So that one person, when, when we read this list, we ought to think of these in like categories rather than these uh, real concise uh, groups. So that, for example, an elder is required to rule well and be able to teach, which would be two different categories listed in the New Testament. And the reason why uh, he, he presses his view that every person's gift is unique is because every time spiritual gifting is talked about, to the believer, it is put in the singular. You are given a gift, singular. And yet it's obvious to be an elder, you have to have different categories, for example, of giftedness. Are you tracking? So look at verse 7, for example. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, singular. Each one is given a gift. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, you can see that there's no no indispensable parts. For example, let's say someone says, I have the gift of helps. That's my gifting. And if that person fails to be a good steward of that grace they've been given, someone might say, well, at least we got five more helps. The church won't suffer. Wrong. Christ saved every member of the church and gifted every member of the church. Therefore, there is no indispensable member. As we fail to be good stewards of the the gift God has given us, the church, to that same degree, will lack maturity. To the degree it lacks maturity, it'll lack Christ-likeness. To the degree it lacks the fullness of the stature of Christ will be to the degree that it's not unified. You see that? Let me just share how Paul emphasizes this more in other places. 1 Corinthians 12.4, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I love this. Paul describes the gifts as manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. He calls them gifts of God in Romans chapter 12. He calls them gifts from Christ in Ephesians. See, you can't separate what the Trinity is doing in, in the Trinity's involvement in the church. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, he says, but as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God gets to decide what the church needs and what the church is, will be like. It's his creativity. He's the one that chooses the variety of the gifting. And and then he says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So you have the picture of God giving various gifts, 
those gifts are indispensable. To the degree, the reason why there is no perfect churches out there is because the Christians in that church are not all being good stewards with what God has given them to love and serve the body of Christ. So back to the original question. What is your ministry? How are you serving one another? How have you conceived of church and what it means to be a Christian? In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul tells young Timothy, fan into the flame the gift God has given you, Timothy. And you might be sitting there thinking, I don't don't know how I'm to serve and love and, and encourage the body, speaking truth in love. I don't know how to do it. Paul's telling Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you have been given. You realize that your identity and the mark of your life ought not be your job, ought not be your things or the stuff that you have. The best thing you've ever been given is Christ. And Christ is your righteousness. He is your justification. And Christ has delivered you gifts to be stewarded and used for the building up of the body of Christ. And that will be the thing that's most important to you when you stand before Christ someday. And so there's a lot more we could say. We could try to define all the gifts talked about. We could try to But let's suffice it to say, it's clear in all these texts that the purpose, uh, there's only one purpose for the spiritual gifts, and it's for building up the body of Christ. It is never to build up a person's own ego or status as the church in Corinth was doing. It is never that. In fact, Harold Honer says this. This is so good. So really, really catch this. Since the gift is measured out by Christ. So if you look at, let's just go before I read that, just look at verse 7 again. But grace was given to each one of us to the measure of Christ's gift. God doesn't just determine what gift he gives you. He determines the measure to which you get it. That's why in in Romans 12, 3, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but according to the measure of your faith. He's, He's speaking of gift, giftedness there that's given by God's grace. So to illustrate that quick, you could... The problem is when you have these clear distinctions, like let's just say the gift of helps. Some, 
Someone might look at someone that's a 10, 10 being the highest. They're a 10 in their giftedness of helps. So this person's saying, I wonder if I got the gift of helps. And then they look over here and they say, no way. I'm nothing like that. Well, you realize I wouldn't be preaching right here if I just looked at John Piper and, and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and, and I said, just merely ask the question, do I have the gift of teaching? Well, I can guarantee you this, I don't have what those guys have. I'm not a 10, but that's how God gives gifts out. He not only determines the gift, but the measure for which he gives it. So here's what Harold Honer says. He says, since the gift is measured out by Christ, there should not be any jealousy within the body. There should not be any jealousy within the body. The difference of the gift does not determine the value. The difference of the gift does not determine the value. The difference of value, catch this, is determined only by the individual's use of it within the body. Let me read that one more time. The difference of the gift does not determine the value. The difference of the value is determined only by the individual's use of it within the body. You want to glorify God with your life. You want to glorify Christ with your life. Well, then give, serve, speak according to the grace that's been given to you to build up the body of Christ. So we looked at the, the fact that we're uniquely gifted. Now, uh, let's look at how we're victoriously gifted. Here Paul seems to need to tell us why Christ has the rights to give out gifts. He justifies why Christ has the right to give out the gifts. And he quotes Psalm 68, all right? Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, this is verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he has this parenthetical comment. He, in light of saying that he ascended, he has to tell you something else. In saying that he ascended, what does he mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So this text has so much ink spilled over it for several reasons. Psalm 68, 18 is difficult in the Hebrew. And so there's debate over how to interpret the Hebrew. 
And in your ESV Bible, for example, here's what Psalm 68, 18 says. You ascended on high. So Paul says he, so he changed it from the second person singular to the third person singular. He ascended on high. He attributes this to Christ. Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Paul says, as he quotes it, that Christ isn't receiving the gifts, he's giving the gifts. And so there's a textual problem that the interpreter needs to, to consider, and there's many different arguments for why this is so. Uh, understanding the context of Psalm 68 is helpful. Psalm 68 is about God scattering his enemies, defeating his enemies, and bringing salvation for his people. And in those days, that looked really <clears throat> specific when, it, when a king would defeat his enemies. <clears throat> when a king would defeat his enemies, what he would do is he would, especially a king in Israel, is he would come into the city and he would have prisoners of war. He would have slaves with him. And he would have the spoil of, of the enemies that were just defeated. And so there would uh, be this triumphal celebration as the king is showing off all the booty that's been uh, gained from the enemies and, and showing off the prisoners. And often there were captives of those enemy nations of, of, of Israelites that were then set free that now get to see their families. So there, there would have been this picture of celebration, of enemies being defeated. And although the king was given all, all the riches that came from the enemies, the king would then disperse them among the people, give them back. So even understanding uh, what a victor in war did back when uh, the Psalms were being written, helps us understand that actually both things, both things a king would do. And so John Stott says uh, this, we need to remember that after every conquest in the ancient world, there was invariably both a receiving of tribute and a distributing of gifts. What conquerors took from their captives, they gave away to their own people. The spoils were divided. The booty was shared. It seems possible uh, that the Hebrew text itself may imply this, since the verb could be translated brought rather than received. He, was, he brought gifts from men rather than received gifts from men. And it's not without significance that two ancient versions or translations, one Aramaic, one uh, Syratic, uh, render it gave. So, so way back in the early church, some of them read uh, Psalm 68 as gave. 
So all that to say, if you want to read more on why the words are different, you can. But what's helpful, I think, is what he says in parentheses, the, the picture were given. In saying that he ascended, what does he mean? But he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. Well, that's debatable. Is it the lower regions of the earth or is it the lower regions the earth? Is, is Paul talking about the incarnation that he just became man and came to the earth and then he ascended? Or is he talking about not only coming to earth, but going to the lower regions of the earth? Because then it says he's exalted not to the heavens, but above the heavens. As though he came to the earth and then down to the lowest parts, even into uh, the place of Hades, potentially. For sure what Paul's saying is that Christ in his incarnation humbled himself. He's at least saying that. And from this text, that's about all we can say, but because we have more scripture, I think we can uh, maybe tie some passages to, together in, in regards to these lower regions of the earth. So let me do my best to give you the picture. So when the Old Testament saints died, uh, the word for hell uh, that we have in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the place of the dead was called Sheol or Hades. And so for the view I guess I'm leaning towards is that when Old Testament unbelievers and believers die, they go uh, to Sheol, and Sheol has two parts in, in the parable with Lazarus that Jesus tells. You have those who are in Abraham's bosom, uh, or, or Jesus calls it paradise. Uh, and then, and so there's a place of the dead that's not yet in the presence of God in heaven, and then there's the place of Hades, those who are waiting in torment for judgment. And, and so the Old Testament would call this uh, Sheol. And so here's uh, what some believe happened when Christ died on the cross. So look at 1 Peter 3.18. This is one of the best gospel texts. If you ever want to share the gospel with someone, this is a great one to memorize, but you'll po probably memorize verse 18 and not 19 and 20 because people start to say, what in the world is he talking about? <clears throat> Here's verse 18. For Christ suffered, or for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's the substitutionary atonement. Jesus takes your punishment. Why? That he might bring us to God. Yes, forgive your sins. But they, you might be brought to God. So that is the gospel. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus' body lay on the cross dead, but his spirit is alive. What happens in that in-between time? From 
the time he dies and he's resurrected. Some believe he went three days into hell. The Apostles' Creed says that. Well, let's read what this text says. But he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So this word proclaimed or preached is not uangalon, which would be preaching the good news. It's a proclamation of something that's true. So something's proclaimed. So he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So who are these spirits in prison? What were they doing in the days of Noah? Genesis 6 says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of his thoughts was only evil continually and then he decided to flood the earth. And so the view that I believe here is that there was certain demons uh, that took on a form that they could reproduce with the children of, uh, or with the daughters of, of men so that another sub-race was formed. Therefore, the God-man could not redeem that race. And so God floods the earth and, and rids the earth of them. <clears throat> Second Peter 2.4 says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So I think that's speaking of that same event. Jude 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here's the picture. So I know that's confusing. But I think this is the picture. Christ dies on the cross. He defeats Satan. He goes down into Hades. And they, the demon world, I don't know how information transfers, but as the Son of God dies, there's a chance that they thought they won. And Christ shows up, and he doesn't preach the gospel. He proclaims to the spirits in prison his victory over Satan and death. And as he preaches to them, so this is just an illustration. If, if, if you picture the place of the dead having an upper part called paradise, the believers of the Old Testament, the lower part being unbelievers that are kept for judgment, where also demonic uh, um, 
spirits are being kept, certain demonic spirits are being kept. Christ goes down, proclaims victory over them, opens the upper part of paradise, and as he ascends into heaven, he brings the Old Testament saints with him. And he passes through the heavens where Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And in Colossians 2.15, we're told that he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He mocked them openly, triumphing over them as he takes the Old Testament believers to heaven. But what about those who are going to believe? He gave gifts. He gave gifts to men. Old Testament believers brought into the presence of God. Before they can be in his presence, the God-man, the first God-man, Jesus Christ needs to lead the way. And then what he does is he gives spiritual gifts to the church so that Satan's kingdom can continually be plundered and that the people of God can be united to him. So, I know Ephesians 8 and 9 doesn't say all that. That could be the way we're to think about uh, how we pull together all these texts. Um, So we saw that the church is uniquely gifted, victoriously gifted by Christ. And now we see that it's corporately gifted. Verse 11, he gave apostles, or he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. So we're going to spend most of our time next week on this. So I'm just going to say a few words and, and draw this to a close. So the best gift God could ever give his people is his word. And Jesus Christ commissioned his apostles To be an apostle, you had to see the risen Christ. You had to be commissioned by Christ himself. And we would not have the New Testament if Christ did not commission the apostles. In fact, the church has spoken in in Acts 122 uh, uh, that, or I'm sorry, I got the wrong Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' doctrine. Christ had more to say to the church. He said it through the apostles. So the church was given. Answer this question. Are you indebted to the apostles? In Ephesians 2.20, we're told that the foundation of the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. God's divine words through human men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Apostles and prophets have ceased. We'll talk more about this next week. So is the church left without the word? 
Look at what, look at what he, he says. Apostles, prophets, evangelists are the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. It should be hyphenated, not shepherd and teachers, I think. Shepherd teachers, what do they do? They teach the apostles' doctrine. They teach the word of God. They point the church to the word of God. And here's the key. To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You don't hire a pastor to do the ministry. You do the ministry. You realize that? God gives the office of elder as a gift to the church to equip the saints to use the gifts they've been given for the work of ministry so that a body is matured when a body is fed Christ's word. When the body is fed Christ's word, they use Christ's gifts. When Christ's gifts are used, then we see the fullness of the stature of Christ begin to come about. And so we'll look at more of that next week. 